0: Good afternoon. So a couple weeks ago, as you know, was Super Bowl Sunday. And there's a brother in our church who has a tradition of watching the Super Bowl. So for 25 years, he hasn't missed the Super Bowl. And wouldn't you know it, our service falls right in the middle of it. So his... He decided, I don't know if it was that morning or sometime over the weekend, that he was going to come to church. And all these invitations to come to a Super Bowl thing were popping up, like, hey man, are you going to come to our house or their house or what? And he said, you know what? I'm going to go to church. And it's like the more that he made a firm stance that he was going to come to church, the more he began to think, I think God's going to speak to me at church tonight. And so he came prepared to hear from the Lord. And he told me that when Mark was preaching, it's never when I'm preaching, it's always when someone else is. When Mark was preaching, and he was preaching out of one of the Psalms, 63, 63? 63? and he was talking about how God was David's God, and and he started moving through the points, the the Lord really began to speak to this brother. So it reminded me to remind you that when we come here, we should be anticipating that God is going to speak to us, that God is going to show us something, that he is going to, you know, we're not just listening to a speech, I mean, it's like this is a time where we interact with God through singing and through prayer, and the Word is preached, and He is speaking to His people, and if we are not receptive, if we do not come with an attitude of wanting to hear, we might be missing something. So, as you know, before I preach, I give you an opportunity in the privacy of your own heart to ask the Lord to speak to you, because I want you to go to God and say, Lord, please... Let me hear from you tonight. So anyway, I just wanted to share that testimony because I thought that was pretty cool. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you could turn to John chapter 4. And the children are dismissed to Children's Church. John chapter 4. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We are taking a short excursion from that. This is the third of three messages on the subject of worship. And this is where we will begin. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Oh, yeah. We're having pizza after the service. So plan on sticking around. Thank you. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus did not, sorry, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, as we come once again to a text of Scripture, to a meeting that is centered around the glory of God, the focus of God, aligning our will to Yours. We ask, Lord, that this would be a time of not only instruction, but of drawing near to the God who has created all things, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the God who loves us and gave Himself for us. And so, Lord, may You now come and awaken our hearts that we may hear and see and understand, that we may have our hearts stirred, our minds intrigued, that we may be drawn into what You have spoken, and that You would be our teacher and our guide this evening. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten and illuminate the text, that we may discover things that perhaps some of us have never seen, that we may discuss concepts that some of us have never considered, and that you would help us to be better worshipers. We pray for our little ones in children's church, Lord, that you would raise them up to be worshipers of the living God. That they would delight in you with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That while they may not understand the things that an adult may understand, oh Lord, you can show them all kinds of wonderful things. And we pray that you would do that tonight. Oh Lord, you are good. And you are good that you reveal yourself, that you have not kept these things hidden from us, but that you delight in making these things known. Please, Lord, make these things known tonight in the gathering of your people, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One day when traveling through the region of Samaria, Jesus encountered a very religious woman. She was also a very sinful woman. She had a past. In fact, she had a present. She needed to be reconciled to God, but like many, her religious customs actually became a barrier to her greatest need. She had a set of beliefs and a set of practices, but they were based on tradition rather than revelation. She had a system, but she needed a savior. Jesus meets this woman at the well as she has come to draw water, and he engages her in conversation. Something very taboo in that culture, not only because he was a man and she was a woman and that kind of thing didn't happen in public, but she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. A very unusual scene. And as their discourse continues, she discovers that this is no ordinary man. He knows things about her. He knows things about her that no one else could know. And he describes her sinful past and her sinful present. And her response to that is that she looks for a place to hide. She hides behind her religion. She says in chapter 4, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I have found that religion is a great place to hide. Before I came to Christ, I hid there often. Whenever someone exposed my sin in some way, I would just pull the religion card and say, well, we believe differently. But there's no hiding when Jesus is in town. He sees it all, and while she tries to deflect the conversation to a 400-year-old debate, he sees right through it the controversy between these two groups was over who practiced true worship. Did the Samaritans practice true worship or did the Jews practice true worship? Which place and which worship did God approve of? She throws that out there. Jesus does not take the bait. In fact, He demolishes the debate altogether and says that very soon, even now, those things are irrelevant. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I want to use this statement in verse 24 as a springboard for our study this evening. We're not going to stay here in John, but this concept is going to be what will govern this third and final message on what is true worship. But first, let us review where we've been. The first week, we looked at what worship is not, and we discussed how there is a right way and a wrong way to worship God. We saw examples of this all the way going back to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. We talked about how the first four commandments were about true and false worship. We saw the false worship of the Israelites with the golden calf, And we saw that the priests Nadab and Abihu tried to do it their own way instead of the way God prescribed, and they were destroyed. So, worship is not us collectively deciding how we want to worship God. We do not make things up as we go. And, in fact, Israel's entire history is a picture of true and false worship all the way into the time of Christ as he confronts the religious leaders in Israel. That was the first message. The second message was what true worship is. And we discussed this thing called the regulative principle of worship, which states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. In other words, we worship God as he has directed us. We come together as God's people, and there are certain things that must be in place to be described as worship. We don't innovate when it comes to worship. We do not add things of our own ideas. And I gave us a list of things that ought to be present when the people of God gather. We sing, we pray, we read scripture, we preach the word, we have fellowship, we have baptism and communion, and we have giving. And in light of Jesus' statement in John 4 that I want us to consider this evening, we could call these last two weeks, Worshiping According to Truth. Jesus said we are to worship according to spirit and truth, and I would say that week one, what worship is not, week two, what worship is, would be worshiping according to truth. God has spoken and we are to align ourselves with what he has prescribed for us to do. So, if that is truth, the regulative principle is worshiping God in truth, then what we want to figure out tonight is, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Did Jesus mean that he would institute his church and it would be similar to the Old Testament worship, we just do it on a different day in a different kind of building, maybe with a few other particulars that are different, there's no more animal sacrifice, but pretty much you have Old Testament worship in a New Testament context? Or did Jesus mean that worship would be an entirely new experience that would transcend the weekly gathering? In other words, that worship would be based more on relationship than ritual. So to answer this, I want to look at one verse in the book of Romans, and that is chapter 12, verse 1. I believe Paul answers the question in Romans 12, 1, what is true worship, and answers the statement Jesus made about worshiping in spirit and in truth. All right here in this one verse. Romans 12, 1 reads this way, I appeal to you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Romans is a wonderful book about what the gospel is. And so Paul spends all of these chapters laying out what Christ has done for believers, how we are justified by faith. How um, it is Christ and Christ alone that makes us reconciled to God. And he spends 11 chapters with deep theology describing all of these things about our standing before a holy God. Now, there's a shift in the book in chapter 12 where he now describes how we are to live in response to what God has done. So, what is our duty... In light of the first 11 chapters of Romans, how, how now must we live? And this is the first verse of that transition in the book of Romans. And he is going to tell us about our duty in the Christian life. And he begins by talking about worship. And he says this. Point number one, true worship is regenerate. True worship is regenerate. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So Paul is addressing Christians. Now this may be obvious. He's writing to a Christian church. But I just want to point out the obvious. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, meaning those who are also united to Christ by faith, who have been adopted into the family of God and who participate in the church. These are the ones who have experienced what Paul talks about in the new birth. They have been made new by faith. They have been joined to Christ. They've been reconciled to God. And they have become true worshipers. Now, man's various religious systems, if you consider the religions of the world, they all try to urge unregenerate dead and lost sinners to worship God. Do these things and you will be saved. But unless the soul has experienced regeneration, unless there has been a new birth, then persuading an unregenerate man to worship God is an impossible task. He is dead and fallen in Adam, and that prevents him from delighting in God, and therefore it prevents him from pleasing God. God is interested in the heart, and until people come to Christ, their hearts are deceitful and rebellious, and they are unable to love and respond to God. So when Paul says, I appeal to you brothers, he is writing to those who have now participated in this spiritual body of believers who have the capacity to obey God. Their sins have been taken away. The Holy Spirit has been given to them so that the very presence of God is within them. And they can now please God because He is at work in them. I was thinking about it this week. It's like we are so lost and corrupted in our natural state that God has to come in and do the work Himself. (laughs) Like He has to enter into us and accomplish the things that he requires from us. He says this essentially in Philippians 2:12 and 13. He says, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling; for it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for His good pleasure. So, God works in the life of the believer, notice, not only to work, but also to will. Meaning, He does not, not only does the activity through you, but He gives you the desire in your heart to do the very thing. Now, we are active participants in this process. We are commanded to obey. But the glory belongs to God because the things He calls us to do can only be accomplished by God. So it's His work and not ours, and He gets the glory. But if a person is not born of the Spirit, they cannot do spiritual things that are pleasing to God. Jesus said, That which is flesh is flesh. All they can do is participate in an an external system, much like the Samaritan woman who was living in sin. They can be deeply committed to their system, but dead on the inside, and usually unaware that there's even a problem at all. Just this last week was the tradition of Ash Wednesday in the Catholic Church. This is where people stop by their church on the way to work or wherever and they get in line and the priest takes some ashes and puts the sign of the cross on their forehead and they are to go about their day with this sign of repentance on their forehead. It is a symbol of repentance and contrition. Now, I would always be surprised when I was still in the workplace that I would see co-workers of mine come in with this ash on their forehead and I know how they live and I know what they boast in and I know what they love because they glory in it. I know what they did last Friday night because they told everybody how wasted they got at the bars. And now all of a sudden they act very somber and oh yes, this is so very important to me. I take my faith very Seriously. Maybe some of your friends on Facebook, they posted a selfie of themselves with a cross on their forehead, which is meant to show off their deep piety, but you see all the other stuff they talk about on Facebook that dishonors God. Now, that is a picture to me of the dead sinner trying to be a worshiper. He doesn't long to be holy, his religion is merely exterior. Now, I'm making a generalization here, okay? These are, this, is, this is my experience with certain kinds of Roman Catholics who do not take it seriously, and I know they don't take it seriously because I know how they live. I know there are some who are deeply committed and they take it very seriously and they do try to do what is right. But for the most part, Ash Wednesday becomes that time when the hypocrites all begin to surface. And the greatest picture of that hypocrisy is the concept of Fat Tuesday. When everyone goes out the night before and gets rip-roaring drunk because Lent starts the next day, and that's when they're supposed to be serious about their religion. And so they're supposed to enter into this season of self-denial, and so let's go out and get as toasted as we possibly can because we're not going to be able to for the next 40 days. And that's what our hearts love. So let's do it to the fullest. Now, I'm not just being mean. I'm not just speaking as an onlooker who's judgmental. This was me, okay? If you know my story of conversion, it all started with me giving up things for Lent every year. So I was that guy. And one year I gave up smoking pot for Lent, and the next year I gave up smoking cigarettes. Didn't, didn't do that right. I totally face-planted. The next year I gave up alcohol and through those series of sacrifices, I'm thinking this is pleasing to God. God is looking at my sacrifice and is pleased with me. That's what I thought. But I didn't have a repentant heart. God is not fooled by exterior things. He sees the heart. And I was lost in Adam, I was a slave to my desires, and I could not repent, not from the heart. I mean, maybe I could get sober and be propped up by some 12-step program, maybe I could adopt some external moral restraint that would keep me from my heart's desire, but I could not be pleasing to God because I treasured sin. And I can't treasure sin and treasure Christ at the same time. I've used the illustration before. It's like you have a salvating Rottweiler and you set before him a steak and you set before him a salad and he is going to go for the steak every time. Why? Because it's in his nature to do so. And in the same way, it was in my nature to sin, and it didn't matter how often I would observe Lent or do Ash Wednesday or all the other stuff, if my heart was not changed, God was not pleased. I could not be a true worshiper. So people can go to this religious service or that, they can practice this ceremony or that, but if there is no inward change, if God is not dwelling on the inside... They are just as lost as the Samaritan woman with a religion to hide themselves behind. So true worship is regenerate. Secondly, true worship is motivated by divine mercy. True worship is motivated by divine mercy. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. True worship is a response to the work of God within you and not a plea for favor in the eyes of God. We respond by worshiping in spirit and truth, not because we are seeking God's favor, but because we already possess it. Because God has opened your eyes to the truth, He's given you a perfect Savior. He has taken away all your guilt and shame. He has adopted you as his child, given you his spirit. You are saved and secure forever. The reasonable response, the the, the response that comes out of the redeemed heart is a desire to worship. It's to use all of your energy, all of your strength, all of your resources to live according to his will. It's to offer yourself in service to Him. When religious cults go door to door, they are doing so because they are trying to gain everlasting life. Their service is based on an attempt to earn God's favor. We received a letter this last week from a Jehovah's Witness, a nice handwritten letter. If you've noticed, since COVID started, since For two years now, they have not been canvassing neighborhoods. But when you have a works righteousness system where you have to keep working to earn eternal life, then you have to do something. And so the leadership of Jehovah's Witnesses says, you make phone calls and you write letters and that's how you're going to do it. And so I've already had two long phone conversations over the last year or so with Jehovah's Witnesses. And they were calling on neighbors to try to persuade them to embrace their false gospel. So we received this nice handwritten letter that the woman wrote and there was a pamphlet in there from the Watchtower Society about how you can have everlasting life. Of course, it is not the gospel. It is not the truth. But my point is, this woman is not writing to us as a response from something wonderful that she just cannot contain, that God is giving away everlasting life as a free gift and she must tell everybody, she does not even know if she will be saved. I mean, she's not writing to people to say, here's how you have everlasting life that I possess. She is trying to gain everlasting life by doing all of these works that she thinks Jehovah requires of her. And so she has no good news to give, and she's hoping that one day Jehovah God is going to look down on her and say, you were faithful enough, here's the gift of eternal life. And sadly, she follows a false God, who is actually the devil, masquerading as the God of the Bible, with a false Christ and a false gospel and a false system of salvation, And she is working it and working it and working it, hoping that someday she will be saved. But salvation is a gift that cannot be earned. And the Scripture plainly teaches that. And our response to that gift as born-again people is a response of worship. It is according to divine worship mercy God has had mercy on us and our response is to be one of worship it's like described in Isaac Watts famous hymn how when I survey the wondrous cross it's got the wonderful lyric in it that says love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all True worship is motivated by divine mercy. Thirdly, true worship involves your body. True worship involves your body. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. True worship involves how you control your body, your behavior. Now, how are you to worship God with your body? By living in a manner that is consistent with who God is and who you are in Christ. You live in such a way that your conduct is holy, and notice what he says, acceptable to God. Now, what? interest does God have in our bodies this is a very different concept than the Greeks of the first century the Greeks taught that the spiritual was the only thing that was important and the bodies were just the, sort of like this prison that held the spirit and the gods didn't care about the body you could do whatever you wanted with it it didn't matter it's just the vehicle for the spirit but in the gospel in in true worship, what God wants in your body is that He wants to take the redeemed part of you, which is the inner man, to lay hold of the unredeemed part of you, which we could call the outer man, and He wants to bring those together in submission to the will of God. And that is how we worship God. So if you have been redeemed, you have an inner person that is Totally fit for heaven. When God saved you, He made you inwardly perfect, let's say. Your spirit is made alive. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Inwardly, you are righteous. So, you are to take the righteous part of you and bring the unrighteous part of you, which the Bible calls the flesh, and bring it in conformity to the will of God, and you do that as an act of worship. Put it another way, the inner you is to conform the outer you into submission so that all of you belongs to God. Paul had spoken about this in chapter 6. He says in chapter 6 verses 12 and 13 of Romans, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So instead of presenting your, God, your, your body to sin, you are to present it to God as an offering to Him. Lost people can't do that. Being lost means you constantly present your body for the purposes of sin. People enslaved to drugs present their bodies to sin to get high. People enslaved to bitterness present their bodies as vehicles for their gossip and their anger. People enslaved to pornography present their bodies to images on a computer screen. But for believers, we are to present our bodies to God because what we do with our bodies become acts of spiritual worship. Another passage that teaches this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So one of the evidences that we are true worshipers of God is that we know how to control our body and we present it to God over and over again in holiness and honor. Worship is not only coming to church and singing songs, which is what most people think of when they hear the word worship. Instead, the majority of your worship to God is not going to be in a church service. It's going to be you pursuing a holy life. When your life is over, and everything you have done for Christ is before you, 99% of your life as a worshiper was not going to be done on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. It will be in regard to your daily submission to God. Worship does not stop and start in the life of the believer. It is to be moment by moment, day by day, an expression of the new birth carried out in your entire being, including the body, as you submit all of yourself to God. That is true worship. We don't offer a dead sacrifice as under the old covenants. We present a living sacrifice. We pursue those things which are pleasing to God. We turn away from those things which are not pleasing to God. And that is the sacrifice we bring to him every day. That means when you are consecrated to God, everything becomes worship. That means when you eat, it's not just to feed the body. It's not just to keep your biology running. Food is an opportunity to worship. You thank God for blessing you in this way. You thank God for providing for you. You thank God that He gave you taste buds. You thank God for that carne asada burrito that is just so good. Like Why would God allow me to have such enjoyment, such pleasure in this life? Worship. Your inner man is doing this while you're eating. (laughs) When you work, it's worship. You thank Him for the ability to work. You thank Him that He gave you strong arms to labor or He gave you a mind that has certain skills to do your tasks. You praise Him for such work you praise him throughout your day you praise him how he uses that to provide for you so richly it all becomes a way to worship think of your least favorite thing to do in this life think of your least favorite chore that you have to do let's say it's doing the dishes that can be an opportunity to worship god You can change your mindset and think this is the task that the Lord has for me right now. And I can glorify Him just as much doing the dishes as I can in this building. Raising my hands, singing to Him, praising Him. That can be an act of worship just as much as this in this building. I mention dishes because I don't like doing the dishes. Now, how can you not worship God? You can murmur. I hate doing the dishes. Look at how many dishes there are. Doesn't anybody around here clean up after themselves? But if you see it as a divine assignment, this is what the Lord has for me right now. I am going to give Him glory as I do this sink full of dishes. Now, that is easier said than done. Amen? but it is something to strive towards. You are called to worship God in regard to your entertainment. How? By setting things before your eyes that are pleasing to Him and turning away from things that you know are not. You do not want to set before yourself things that will hinder your relationship to Him. You do not want to bring Jesus into that movie theater with you if it's going to be full of sins that put him on a cross. There is no area of your life that should be separate from God. We don't live a a compartmentalized life. Yes, I do worship on Sunday, and then I do this on this day. No, it's all to be a constant in our life that we are worshipers of the living God. So, true worship is regenerate, true worship is motivated by divine mercy, true worship involves your body, and fourth, and finally, true worship involves service. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this is a fascinating term here. This last phrase. You might have a translation that says something different. King James Version says, which is your reasonable service. The NIV says, this is your true and proper worship. The New American Standard says, your spiritual service of worship. Now, why are there such divergent translations here? Spiritual worship in the Greek is logikos latreia. And logikos means, that's where we get logical from, it means reasonable, but it can also mean spiritual. And then latreia means worship, or it could mean service. So it's a reasonable or spiritual sacred service. Now I think reasonable is probably better because he talks in verse 2 about being transformed in our minds. And so it's only reasonable or logical that in light of what God has done for you, you are to do this. But you can see how they could, if you've got multiple definitions of words, how they can struggle to kind of come up with the concept. But I think it's interesting that he has at the same time spiritual worship could also mean reasonable service. So you have service and worship that are in interchangeable terms here in a sense. And I think it's very fitting that God wrote it this way because the service you render is equivalent to the worship that you bring. So I would say the King James Version is right. The New International Version is right. The New American Standard is right. The ESV is right. Because God wrote it with such a dynamic language that it has multiple facets of the same kind of activity, which is service and worship. So the service you render is the worship that you bring, and it's to be through your entire being, where you are a living sacrifice conformed to the will of God. So serving is worshiping. Now there's a verse in Galatians that has always stumped me. And it says this in Galatians 5.14, but I think this verse in Romans is going to help. He, Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this has stumped me because Jesus said the law is fulfilled in in this. Love God and love your neighbor. So Jesus took the Ten Commandments and broke it down to two. And then Paul takes it and breaks it down to one. The whole law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. The whole law. What about the commandments about loving God? But if your sacred service is worship to God, it's your spiritual worship, it is your sacred service, then, it's, then worship is manifest most clearly not in singing to God. Unbelievers can sing. But it's in loving other people. You follow me here? If Paul says, here's all of the law, Love your neighbor. Then that must mean when I'm loving my neighbor, I am obeying and worshiping God in that activity. It has to mean that. Otherwise, Paul's saying your neighbor is more important than God. He's not saying that. He's saying that our service and our love towards others is the same thing as worship. Spiritual worship. Worshiping in spirit and truth. And then as chapter 12 continues, you have all of these statements about how you are to do this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Live in harmony with one another. And on and on and on. So, all of those commandments are not separate from worship. In other words, he doesn't start with talking about worship in Romans 12, and now he's going to talk about some other things. This is all flowing out of what he said about worship, and this is what loving our neighbor looks like, which is worship. So, we sought in this study to discover what Jesus means in John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And what we discover in the New Testament is that it is of utmost importance that we gather weekly to worship together. We saw that last week. But there is more to it than that. Jesus came to raise up men and women and children to be full-time worshipers. Full-time He came to set us free that we might worship God not one day a week, but every day of the week. That our devotion to Him would be an unceasing experience where everything becomes an opportunity for true worship. This is what Jesus meant by saying in spirit and in truth. Under the old covenant, God was worshipped in a specific location, He was worshipped in a particular building in that location called the temple. You had to be born into the kingdom through the Jewish lineage to be part of the kingdom. To approach God, it required a priest and a dead sacrifice. And then worship was largely external and physical, meaning you dress a certain way, you eat certain foods, clean and unclean, all of that. But then under the new covenant, God is worshipped in every place. That's what he was talking about with the woman of Samaria. God's people become the temple of God. So we are the temple. So we can meet in this building. We could meet down the street. We could meet in Kenya. We become the place that God dwells. Rather than Being born into the kingdom by being a Jew, the kingdom must be born inside of you. That's New Testament worship. We become born again and we become part of this spiritual kingdom. Rather than bringing a sacrifice, Jesus becomes the atoning sacrifice and we, in response, become a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. And then lastly, the New Testament worship is largely internal and spiritual. We don't worship God in a certain place with certain activities only. We can worship God in every single thing we do, eating and drinking, doing the dishes, whatever it might be. Every area of our lives, every experience throughout our day, moment by moment is the believer's life to be expressed as an act of worship. Worship is not an external religion with doctrines and practices that are expressed once a week, but a life that is lived in relationship to God and expressed through every activity, every conversation, every waking moment. This is what God wants. This is what He desires of you. He wants all of you, not just some of you. Body, soul, and spirit. This is what true worship is. Let us pray. Lord, these things are not burdensome because the more that we surrender, the more we discover freedom. The more we surrender our will to do Your will, the more we discover joy and peace and blessing. So Lord, as we hear of this, that you want more of us and more of us and more of us, may it be a desire of our heart, a desire born out of love to give that to you. Not that you are a harsh taskmaster, but that you are a loving Father and you are calling us to a life of joy and freedom. Help us with these things this week, Lord. We struggle in many ways. We fight against doing Your will. And we are stubborn and stiff-necked. We ask for Your help in these things, Lord. And I pray that You would bless us this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.